0: Welcome to A City Reading, Cork City Library's talking newsletter of library news and features. I'm Glenn, and our readers in this episode are myself, Claire, Marion and Michael. This month we bring you Remembering Derek Mann by Dr. Circa Fogarty, a step-by-step guide to researching your family tree by John Feely, part one of a four-part series, a review of Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light by Cato O'Callaghan And the History of Cork's Berwick Fountain by Michael Linehan.
1: Remembering Derek Mahan by Dr. Sirka Fogarty. Derek Mahan, whose poem Everything is Going to Be All Right brought solace to many during the outbreak of the COVID 19 pandemic, died at his home in Kinsale, County Cork. Age 78, on October 1st, 2020. Regarded by many as the poet's poet, Matin has written some of the most respected and admired contemporary poetry in the English language, winning numerous awards for his work, including the prestigious David Cohen Prize for a lifetime achievement in literature. He has produced in excess of 20 collections of poetry, has adapted literary novels for film and television, and has worked as a literary journalist for many Irish and UK newspapers and magazines. Born in Belfast in 1941, Mahan was the only child of working-class Church of Ireland parents. His father was a shipping engineer, while his mother, who had worked for a flax-spinning company before she married, devoted herself to housework. They were Protestants, as Mahan told the Paris Review, but not slavishly so. They weren't really serious church people. I mean, they were Protestants. There is no such thing as a devout Protestant, is there? Protestants aren't devout, they're staunch. After Skeg O'Neill Primary School, he attended the Royal Belfast Academical Institution, where he started writing and publishing poems, winning the first of many prizes when he was seventeen, and was involved in amateur dramatics, also participating in debates. Having made the decision to attend Trinity College Dublin, Mahon stated that he rumbled Belfast for the bigoted corrupt dump that it was, and I was delighted to get out of it. Turning his back on the North, however, also meant severing links with his aging parents. He missed the death and funeral of each of them. He matriculated in Trinity College to read English, French and philosophy. And although he formed many friendships with writers such as Michael Longley, Ivan Boland and Brendan Kennelly, his Trinity years were difficult. He was a less than diligent student, twice expelled for poor attendance at lectures. And in his second year, he allegedly attempted suicide by jumping into the Liffey at Butt Bridge following a personal crisis. Mahon, however, remembers it differently. And in one of his essays, in Red Sails, 2014, makes a comment, jump in the river for fun and somebody will say you tried to commit suicide. As noted by Stephen Ennis in his book on Mahan, 2015, the truth of the matter may be contained in Michael Longley's pithy summing up of the event. Partly theatrical, partly suicidal. However, it was at Trinity that he decided to devote his life to poetry. Mahan left Trinity in 1965 to take up studies at the Sorbonne in Paris, but his stay in Paris only lasted a year and he subsequently worked his way through Canada and the United States. In 1965, he won an Eric Gregory Award and three years later published his first full collection, Night Crossing. During these years, he travelled a great deal. England, France, Belgium, Germany, Canada and the USA. He worked at a great many disparate jobs and even managed to finish his degree at Trinity, but did not attend the graduation ceremony. In 1967, Mahan began seeing Doreen Douglas, a Trinity classmate, whom he married five years later. Not an easy marriage. It involved numerous and increasingly lengthy acrimonious separations. Mahan would appear to have been a reluctant husband and father. They had two children, and things were greatly worsened by his problem drinking and, in 1986, adultery. Mahon continued to write, publishing six books of poems between 1972 and 1985, as well as various pamphlets. He worked for Vogue, the New Statesman and the BBC, but could never really hold down a regular job, which exacerbated matters further with his wife. He then entered a prolonged period of writer's block, during which he turned to the translation of French poetry, especially that of Philippe Jacoté, In 1975, he wrote what was to become his most celebrated poem, A Disused Shed in County Wexford, described by John Banville as the best single poem written in Ireland since the death of Yeats. As well as problems in his own private life, Mahan was beset by problems in the public sphere. The Northern Ireland troubles started just after Night Crossing was published, and left him deeply disturbed and perplexed. In 1977, he was appointed writer-in-residence at the new University of Ulster. When that position terminated in 1979, he left Northern Ireland for good. Though he found it difficult to deal head-on with the troubles, it was a recurring theme in his work. Indeed, it seems that Mahan himself was one of those unreconciled characters which feature so largely in his work. As his relentless travel show, he was a wanderer at heart. However, Mahan was constantly plagued by poor finances and frequently hospitalised for alcoholism. He was one of a great number of exorbitantly talented writers who battled alcohol addiction. Widely regarded as one of the greatest writers of all time, Brenton Behan described himself as a drinker with a writing problem, and the prolific Flan O'Brien died from alcohol complications at 54. A comprehensive list of creative geniuses who dealt with addiction in many forms would be too great a digression here, but it's difficult not to acknowledge the connection between addiction, other mental health disorders, and genius. In his article discussing the association between major mental health disorders and geniuses, psychiatrist Nicholas padilla reminded us that there exists an association between creativity and major mental disorders known since antiquity. Aristotle, in his Perspicacity, stated there is no genius without having a touch of madness. Podia 2014. Mahan has been described as a truculent character, more comfortable being in the position of an outsider. Mahan himself states, it is important for me to be on the outside looking in. He wove together history, personal demons and quiet contemplation in works that could be dark but also spoke of renewal. His sympathy was often with waste an example of which is the famous A Disused Shed in County Wexford. And critics such as Hugh Houghton have noted that there is an indisputable connection between order and detritus in Mahon's work, Houghton 2002, exemplifying the poet's paradoxical fascination with trash as to paraphrase A Disused Shed, a place where thought might grow. Essentially, Mahon produced poems that combined classical allusion with vivid everyday detail And explored history, conflict and personal demons with great wit, elegance and scepticism. In his work, states John Byrne, Mahan completely eschews complacency, showing a readiness to confront in himself the metaphysical unease with which modern man and his literature are afflicted. Following Mahan's death, President Michael D. Higgins said, the loss of Derek Mahan is like the falling of oak trees, we are left with hope from the fruit of the acorns in which the writing and its encouragement represents as a legacy. No doubt, now that Mahan himself has gone, his work will be studied assiduously with a renewed interest and vigour. Mahan's work is a testament to the fact that it is possible to create something beautiful out of darkness and despair, a fact that could all serve us well during this difficult year. In Antarctica, Mahan says, I am just going outside and maybe some time, The others nod, pretending not to know. At the heart of the ridiculous, the sublime. He leaves them reading and begins to climb. With his incredible body of work, Mahan has indeed left us with plenty to read. And it is all of it, sublime.
0: A Step-by-Step Guide to researching your family tree by senior library assistant, John Feely. Part one of a four part series. Genealogy is the study of family history and origins. The word genealogy comes from two Greek words, one meaning race or family, and one meaning theory or science. Genealogy is a study and pastime has grown exponentially in recent years with a natural yearning to understand one's roots. Irish genealogy has been no exception And its growth can be naturally attributed to the wide and varied diaspora which makes up Irishness and the Irish race. Yeats stated that we can only begin to live when we conceive life as a tragedy. In the spirit of this quote, genealogy as a study is more often than not conducted long after the main actors involved have passed on. Genealogy is often an oral tradition passed down word of mouth through generations and form a core identity of an individual immigrants pass down nuggets of information of their past life such as family, history, place and occupations to name but a few. It is through a combination of spoken word and official documentation that we may explore our past. Cork City Libraries has placed a great emphasis on the promotion and distribution of various sources and materials to aid in the location of family history. One of the major responsibilities of our local studies department is genealogy with a great diversity of sources available on our website, www.corkpastandpresent.ie Cork, as the major Irish trading port on the Atlantic, has seen untold numbers of Irish people leave this island for a mixture of reasons, in search of a better life, escape from religious persecution, and in search of freedom and adventure, to name just a few. Cork, and in particular Cove, were often the final points of contact with many people with the land of their birth. Cork's importance as a port trading city led to a diverse population with segments of society including Norse to Gaelic, British, Huguenot and Jewish to name but a few. The following guide will attempt to help those interested to locate their own family background through a rich selection of sources. Step 1. Your first step in tracing your family history should be to ask members of your family and friends to tell you what they know or what they think they know about the family. Try to get approximate dates of births, marriages and deaths as these would be very important for your future research. Find out what they know about more distant relatives, ask how second cousins are related to you for example. Getting a feel for the network of family relationships will help you when you are drawing up your family tree. Ask especially about personal names and place names, places and dates of births, deaths and marriages, occupations, sporting achievements and military service. When you have been given information, write it down. Do not trust your memory. Record any information given to you as soon as possible after getting it. Step 2. After consulting with family and friends, see if you can find any documentary evidence about the family and old family Bibles, albums of photographs or scrapbooks. Take a look in the graveyards where your deceased relatives are buried to discover any gravestone inscriptions. All possible sources of information available to you should be investigated. You never know when a seemingly irrelevant piece of information could turn out to be an important clue to a family relationship. It is vital to establish where a particular family came from. A number of Irish surnames are very common. Fairly obvious examples are Murphy, Kelly and O'Sullivan. Your chances of finding information on someone who had a common surname without knowing, as precisely as possible, where he or she came from are vanishingly small. Imagine trying to find records concerning a Julie O'Sullivan if all you know about her is that she came from West Cork. Step 3. Once you have your preliminary research done, your next step should be to visit the local studies department. Staff in the department will be able to advise you on which sources you should consult next based on the information you have gathered already. They will also be able to tell you what sources are available in the library itself and in other local repositories. Always remember the golden rule in genealogy, work back from what you know to try to establish links between persons named in the various sources you have consulted. Do not guess that a connection exists between your family and the name you have discovered if you cannot establish a definite link. An example will help clarify this point. Suppose you know that one of your great great grandfathers was Patrick Murphy who worked as a baker somewhere in North Cork. If you then find a baker named Patrick Murphy listed in a directory for the middle of the 19th century who was a baker in Kenturk, you should not assume that he was your great-great-grandfather. Of course, he may have been, but you need to find documentary evidence proving the link. If you follow the golden rule, you will not waste time running up blind alleys. Step 4. By this stage, you should be ready to consult the main sources of genealogical information. These are parish records of baptisms and marriages, civil records of births, marriages, and deaths and census records. Many of these records have been digitised and are available to people from the comfort of their own home. Sources such as newspaper articles and postal directories are also important and are once again well digitised to allow for more efficient search. Cork City Libraries hold subscriptions for a wide variety of sites with Find My Past being a prime example to allow for the search of rare records such as military or travel records. Next episode, learn how parish and religious records can help you research your family tree.
2: And the Light by Hilary Mantel, a book review by Kate O'Callaghan. The Mirror and the Light is the third volume in Hilary Mantel's trilogy on the life of Thomas Cromwell, Chief Minister of King Henry VIII. This substantial book begins and ends with an execution. The opening pages deal with the aftermath of Queen Anne Boleyn's beheading, and the book ends with Cromwell who engineered her fall from favour, contemplating his own imminent execution. The Tudor court of the 1530s is dominated by the all-powerful king, and around him are his courtiers, his wives, and warring noblemen who compete for his approval. The quiet and obedient Jane Seymour becomes queen shortly after Anne Boleyn's death but dies giving birth to the son the king longed for and sacrificed so much for. Cromwell's role in the choice of Henry's fourth wife comes back to haunt him. When the German princess Anne of Cleves arrived in England, the king takes an instant dislike to her and demands an end to the marriage. After six months, a divorce is arranged and the king already has his eye on his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, niece of the Duke of Norfolk. However, he never fully forgives Cromwell for the foreign alliance debacle, thus leading ultimately to Cromwell's downfall. Scenes of high tension at the Tudor court are interspersed with domestic scenes in Cromwell's household. His close relationship with his son, Gregory, his nephew, Richard, and his adopted son, Rafe. Hilary Mantel also introduces a fictitious daughter. The extensive cast of characters requires the reader's mental stamina and concentration. Like the two earlier volumes, this novel is extensively researched and recreates a 16th century world of intrigue and suspicion where life is often precarious and depends on the king's favour or lack of it. For fans of the Tudor period, this is a great read. The Mirror and the Light is available on BorrowBox, the app which gives library members free access to thousands of eBooks and e-audiobooks. Links available from our website at www.corkcitylibraries.ie.
3: The Berwick Fountain is located near the Grand Parade library and people pass it every day but very few people realise its full history. Judge Walter Berwick would have passed quietly into the mists of time but for his lasting legacy of providing one of the few public fountains in Cork City during his lifetime. He proved to be an extremely popular figure in the city during his 12 years there from 1847 1859. During his tenure, he became one of the first judges to advocate the model of suspended sentencing. Following his departure as chairman of the quarter sessions, he decided to donate a public fountain to the citizens of Cork. The fountain was designed by the well-known architect Sir John Benson and is sculpted from Cork limestone. The inscription on it reads, This fountain was erected in 1860 by Walter Berwick Esquire in remembrance of the great kindness shown to him by all classes in the city and county of Cork while presiding amongst them for 12 years as chairman of the quarter sessions. It is also positioned in the historic location of the old Tuckys Bridge. When the fountain was completed in 1860 it was unfortunately plagued with problems as the city's insufficient water supply often left it high and dry. During this arid period, it accumulated dirt and filth and became an embarrassment to Walter Berwick, who wrote to the Cork Corporation requesting its removal. Fortunately, remedial work was undertaken, which ensured its restoration. This included a new pipe water supply. It was officially presented by John by Judge Berwick to the Mayor John Arnott, who accepted it on behalf of the city on the 1st of January 1862. The Electric Tramway and Electric Lighting Company erected its trampoles in 1898 to provide electricity from its generating station on Albert Road. The trampole, located at the Berwick Fountain, had the longest span of cable bracket arm in the city. A ladder was constantly placed on the pole to ensure rapid maintenance of the electricity supply if needed. Over the years, many refurbishments were carried out. However, notably, it was disassembled during the refurbishment of the Grand Parade in 2006. The restored fountain was reconstructed and positioned almost on its original position in June 2007. A new LED lighting system was installed by Cork City Council in 2018 which enabled the fountain to be seen prominently at night. Until recently, it was a popular location where noisy celebrations took place in the early hours of the morning following the closure of pubs and nightclubs. But we ask, what became of the illustrious Judge Walter Berwick? Unfortunately, he and his sister Elizabeth came to a very sad end when the train in which they were travelling was involved in the catastrophic collision. In August 1868, they were returning from a holiday in Switzerland when they and another distant relative, Louisa Symes, boarded the Irish mail train bound for Holyhead. At Abergelly, North Wales, the locomotive collided with several runaway carriages from a goods train, Some of these contained paraffin, which resulted in an inferno killing 33 passengers, including Walter, Elizabeth and Louisa. It was initially believed that the judge had survived, but when a pocket knife was found with Berwick engraved on it, his fate was confirmed. At the time, it was the worst train disaster in British history. The victims were all buried together in the mass grave at St. Michael's Church in Abergelly, where a monument was erected in the churchyard. The Berwick Art Club was founded in his memory in Dublin in October 1868. And so ends our short history of Judge Walter Berwick and the Berwick Fountain.
0: That's all for now. For information, opening hours, or contact details about Cork City Libraries, visit our website at www.corkcitylibraries.ie or follow us on social media channels. Music is by Chris Toomey from his album Midnight on the Water. Thanks for listening. Slán!